Hi friends, welcome to Womankind. This is episode 30 and I'm here with my guest for today, Esther Kim. Uh, you'll have to excuse my voice. I am getting over a cold slash allergy attack, so I'm a little hoarse today. Um, but we're here to hear about Esther. So hi, Esther. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, we've, this has been in the works for a couple months now. Um, I came across Esther because she is in a band with my cousin, a band called Tokyo and the Boy. And I went to their show at Mohawk Place in Buffalo a couple months ago. Actually, how long ago was that now? It was right after Christmas, right after and Christmas. I was sick as a dog. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. So that was your time to be sick. Yeah. Um, but despite your illness, you were amazing. And what really drew me to Esther was in the lyrics of their songs, she had um, references to a lot of literary works. And before each song, she gave a little bit of an explanation and, you know, the, the literary, that really appealed to the literary part of me. So here we are all these months later. Um, and additionally, Esther has just finished her degree and certification to become a teacher. And so that's another thing we have in common. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so instead of me telling your story, Esther, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your story? Um, so I was born in California, in Los Angeles, and I grew up in Southern California until I was about 13. And if anybody knows anything about California, there is quite a large Asian population, and I'm Asian American. And I grew up in a community where there were quite a lot of Asians. And so I was immersed in that. And when I was 13, um, there were some situations where I ended up having to move to Korea. And a lot of people may think, oh, well, that's great because, um, you know, you're going back to like your home country. But what happened was actually the opposite. When I went to Korea, um, I looked Korean, but the moment I opened my mouth, I was, my first language was English. So people were kind of taken aback and there was something different about me and my siblings that people just couldn't put their finger on and so people were kind of weary of us and so we were considered kind of outsiders mm -hmm. and um, I lived there until I was about 21 and then I came to New York to go to school and so I went to theology school then I went to regular college and then I moved to Japan for two years to be an English teacher. And then I moved to New York City. And so that's where I've been the last two years. And that's where I still am. And <laughs> um, yeah, so that's my journey so far in a nutshell. Wow, that is a lot of international movement there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gives you kind of a really interesting perspective. And so... When a lot of people are like, oh, where, are you, where do you come from? Where's your hometown? I, you know, I, I really have nothing to say because I really don't have a hometown. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a home base and uh, my family scattered everywhere. So we don't have one place that we um, kind of come back to as a central location. So it's almost like being a vagabond if I want to paint it in a romantic 
broad brush. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So how is that challenging for you to not have like a home base with your family? You know, a lot of people, you know, no matter where you go, you know, people are tied heavily, whether for, for better or for worse, to their families. People are tied heavily to um, the place that they were brought up in. And, um, you know, the way that we're brought up, you know, whether we like it or not, it really um, affects us um, and, you know, determines who we become as adults this way or that. And because of that, um, you know, not having a home base, really, not having a hometown, um, at times it makes me feel like I'm rootless, like I have no roots. And some people, you know, may argue, well, you have your family. And I, and that's absolutely true. But um, our family has been through quite a lot of difficult circumstances um, that have strained our relationships throughout the years. And so we are tied by blood and we will do anything for each other. But um, just like any other family, it, we're not perfect. And we struggle to kind of keep the bonds there. And we really do try. But it's it's us it's a really difficult struggle mm -hmm. um, sometimes and so um, I think and because of the fact that we're all so far apart from each other it's easier and it's more natural for people to kind of gravitate towards and lean on people that are closer to them in um, geographical proximity mm -hmm. so um, you know that's I think what all of us tend to do to be honest and on top of that, the fact that um, uh, I'm an Asian American, you know, um, it's kind of like what W.E.B. Du Bois said in his book, um, The Soul of Black Folk. He was talking about how, you know, yes, they're free men, freedmen, and their ancestry may have come from Africa, but they're, they were established in the United States. And for you know, some people back then, there were dreams of once them, once the um, African slaves becoming freed to go back to Africa, their motherland. And for some, that may have been wonderful. But I know that for others, when they did, um, it was different because it, there was a huge culture, cultural gap, obviously. And, you know, sometimes as people, we romanticize things in our minds of, of a utopia. And sometimes it's not always the way that we imagined it. And I feel like it was a, not the same, but in somewhat of a similar um, situation with some Asians or Asian Americans in the sense that we're born here and so we think of a place where we will be accepted Irregardless of regardless of what we look like, and when we go to our quote unquote motherland or the country of our roots, we're not completely accepted because culturally or in some way or another we're different, and so that creates another stress point or another um, point of difference that 
becomes another challenge in our lives. And so I feel um, children of ambassadors who are maybe American and were born in a different country and raised in a different country or, you know, like missionaries, children or, you know, Asian Americans or African Americans or, you know, Know, whatever country Americans, um, I think that all of us may feel a certain avenue of that that stress or the challenge that is there um, in discovering identity, and that's definitely something that I have struggled with my entire life. The issue of identity, regards to how I look, the culture I was raised in, et, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Just kind of a practical question. How many siblings do you have? Um, so there are three of us. Me, my younger sister, and my younger brother. Okay. Interesting. That is quite a lot to unpack. And I something that kind of struck me as you were saying that was, or as you were telling that story, there are so many people that live in the United States that were born here um, that, you know, are so quick to like stake a claim to another country and say like if someone asks like what are you they'll say oh I'm Italian I'm you know German um, when really you know maybe they've never even been to that country um, and they are truly American because they've been born in the United States and we're going generations and generations back um, so it's just interesting that people are so could be so quick to claim another country um, when they do, in fact, have like a pretty comfortable place in America as a position. Yeah, I'm. I, you know, I don't know if I. I have no idea. I, I do not claim to know like everything about social justice and like you know politically correctness and mm-hmm. all that stuff. But. Um, and I don't know if anybody who makes those claims are correct or incorrect. Mm-hmm. However, um, I don't know. I, as far as like people being proud of their origins, I, I'm i not so sure. As, I, I personally don't understand why. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's just something that is inherited through um, family. Like, mm-hmm. oh, we're, we're a strong stock from this country. So... You know, we've survived in this country and we're, you know, we're purebred or whatever, you know, like I, I have no idea, mm-hmm. um, you know, what the reason is. But I would I would definitely suggest um, to people like, so wh- why? Why is that important to you? Um, why is that kind of pride or proudness um, integral to your identity? And mm-hmm. then and then in connection with that, then what is your identity really based upon? Mm-hmm. Um, I think our I think the foundations of our identity and who we are, um, I think what they're built on really determines and makes and defines the kind of people that we become and that we are. So I, I don't know. I mean, but I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying it's definitely something to consider. I know that those are things that I've definitely considered um, for long, long periods of time, stretches of time. So, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the identity is something that, you know, takes a lifetime to craft. And oh, yeah. Some people think about it more than others, I would say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Uh. <laughs> 
So what other experiences have you had being a bicultural person living in both the United States and living in Korea and Japan? Um, I think it's great in the sense that I understand Eastern and Western culture very, like fairly well. Um, and so it allows me to bridge the gap. So if there is a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of something, and a lot of the times, even in language translation, there's a cultural element um, or maybe a religious element to that language where, that does not get translated or does not translate well. So um, it's really allowed me to kind of look deeper into languages when I am, you know, hearing different languages or studying a different language. And it opens up historical elements and cultural elements, you know, the sociological, the anthropological. And so, I mean, and I love that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a deep passion of mine to learn about new cultures and why people do things, even single minute things. And um, because there, you can learn so much about a people or a nation just from the little details. And so that's, that's something that I've kind of strive, strive to do, but, um, and I'm really happy and I'm very privileged that I have that East West outlook. Um, but a struggle that I've definitely had is the fact that, um, you know, like you're not really accepted, um, a hundred percent into any country um, because you're not 100% one country. And because of that, um, you know, um, it becomes difficult. It feels like you don't have a place that you can call home, whether it be um, a li- like a literal home or a country. And a lot of people say that America is, you know, it's a free nation that anybody can become an American. There's the stereotypical American dream. But I feel like in a lot of ways, there is still a striving in um, America and any country for homogeneity. And because of that, um, there's, you know, I feel like there's still a lot of prejudice. Um, And, you know, yeah, so, yeah, those are some of the things that I've encountered. Um, if I gave an example, like a really simple example, <laughs> um, which, uh, what can I say? Like a really like shallow example is like on in New York City, I don't know how many times, there's a large Chinese immigrant population. And of course, there are also Asian Americans that live in New York City as well. But because there's a large Chinese population, um, whenever I take the bus sometimes, or I'm in a cafe and I was tutoring someone one-on-one and my student happened to be a Korean woman, uh, a man came begging for money, but the first thing he said was, ni hao ma. And I was like, I just looked at him and I was like, what? <laughs> and he was like, and he said it louder and slower. And I was like, and I just looked at him and I said, I'm sorry, sir, but I'm not Chinese. And this man said, well, I'm sorry, but you know, oh, I'm sorry, but y'all look the same. And oh. when he said that to me, 
I, you know, I had experienced that kind of, uh, he didn't mean it with malice. There wasn't any malice in his voice. He was just being very blunt and honest. And I had experienced that similar, a similar thing several times over. So it's not like it phased me, but I just kindly looked at him and I said, you know, sir, um, when you assume that I'm Chinese, um, that is a type of, you know, like racism. Mm-hmm. Because there are other Asian nationalities, so I, I I I hope that you can you consider that next time. You know, next time you approach an Asian person, um, and that was the end of that. But mm-hmm. things like that happen all the time, and there are people who ask me, "Oh, so when did you come to America?" And sometimes people are talking to me and they say, um, "Oh, your English is so good." Um, so how, how old were you when you came to the States? And I said, well, actually, I'm from, I'm American. I was born here. And they said, oh, well, that's why your English is so good. Um, there are other times when people, just they just assume just because of the color of my skin and how my face looks. And there are other things like, um, um, I don't know, like, I don't know, things, there have been comments about things that I eat, because Chinese people, I know, like, Chinese culture, they don't let anything go to waste. I'm not Chinese, but I know that they don't let anything go to waste, so that, um, you know, they eat a lot of different things. They eat bugs, they eat, you know, like, um, offal, they eat, um, rabbit heads, and lamb's brains, and monkey brains, and, you know, but it's all to survive. And mm. I'm not Chinese, and I wasn't raised eating those things. But you know, those kinds of questions are asked of me, and I'm like, actually, I'm, <laughs> I'm a vegan, <laughs> <laughs> and I eat mostly vegetables and beans. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like there are these stereotypes that people kind of expect me to live up to, and when I don't, it surprises them. But you know, that kind of having that stereotype in their mind that all Asians are the same, that Japanese, Korean, and Chinese culture, and even Thai, Singaporean, you know, like all of those cultures are the same is, it's quite, it's quite a large stereotype. And those are the things that I've definitely encountered. But the the funniest one <laughs> is, oh, so you're Korean, are you from North or South Korea? <laughs> and, and I, and I'm like, well, actually, if if I you can't be from North Korea because they kind of kill you <laughs> right <laughs> when you try to leave so yeah, you know things like that mm-hmm. so yeah <laughs> so I mean speaking of North Korea have yeah. you, <laughs> that's kind of a weird segue um yeah have you experienced any like heightened prejudice recently with North Korea being in the news so much and you know, it kind of like being put back on Americans' radar in a way that it maybe hasn't in a few years? So this is the thing. Um, A couple of Americans have asked me in the last two years, like since I've been in New York City, like, aren't you guys worried? Um, And and I always tell them the same thing. The thing I tell them is, you know, South Koreans have lived with Um, news about North Korea, it's on a daily basis. They have things pop up on the news all the time, you know, things that aren't broadcasted over here. And 
you know, South Koreans have lived with this, you know, quote unquote threat in such a close proximity um, for, for so years long. years and years yeah. and years. Yeah, because ever since the Civil War has been uh, a standstill since 53. So, um, you know, it's been over 60 years. And so they're used to it. It's not, it's not anything different from what they usually hear all the time or, you know, the amount of news that they've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's nothing big. It's just the Western um, world kind of picks and chooses what they broadcast and they can sometimes blow it up or don't blow it up or whatever. And so um, they make it they make it seem like it's a more dramatic problem or maybe South Koreans are ha- having a bigger problem to deal with. But they've had to deal with this almost every day since 53. So it's not it's not anything new, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've actually heard this several times, like recently, Um particularly at a conference that I went to where a a teacher asked, you know, what should we tell our students when they ask questions about North Korea? And a teacher who had, you know, who's done some traveling and spent some time in South Korea said exactly what you just said, that people in South Korea have been hearing this for decades, and so they're not worried. And, you know, it's just, quote unquote, new to people in the United States at the moment. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, and there are other things. Um, I mean, there are books that people can read if they want to get a better idea of the situation. Um, you really have to look into Korean history and also the political history since, um, you know, like a little bit before the civil war in Korea, because what people don't realize is, is that the North and South Korean split came from um it came from like a political reaction towards the Japanese um, colonization in Korea, um, which is very similar to British colonization of other countries like India, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's there's nothing really different in that regard. And so if you know the history, then you'll understand and get a bigger picture and see what's really going on. So, and there are some really good texts out there. Um, so, yeah. Do you have any, like, off the top of your head <laughs> that you could name? Oh, man. Um, so, there's a history book called uh, History of Korea, and it's written by, I can't remember his name. Um, it's written by a professor from California. I think he's a professor of U.S., uh, not UCLA. But you see, USC. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know, Sounds I'm good. not very. I'm not very good with names <laughs> or titles. Um, I'm really good with visuals. I'm more of a visual person. And there's a really great book on um, the polar. It's a white cover with like North Korean a North Korean soldier's picture on the front, but it's like the polarization or the polar opposites of. North and South Korea or something like that. And it's a history of North Korea and South Korea since 1989. And that book is very helpful because it really focused on the political aspects of things. And it also gives um, some background history of the current North Korean president, Kim Jong-un, and so um, and his education. He actually went to school in Europe. So um, he had a Western education. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, so 
it lends a really um, a much more broad spec, like a broad look on what he does and why he does things and all that jazz. So yeah. Well, thanks for the suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> Not very helpful without the actual titles, but... <laughs> no, I used to work at Barnes & Noble, and I never really knew where anything was, and people would come in and say, I'm looking for a book with a red cover, and I was like, <laughs> I don't know, and then, of course, inevitably, one of the um, older people that had been working there for a while would know exactly where the book with the red cover was, and they could run and find it right away, <laughs> so... Yeah, <laughs> not much to go on. <laughs> um, so is there anything else like in that line of discussion that you wanted to touch upon? Um, you know, like, I think it's just that regardless of people's race or ethnicities, I think it's very important to get to know people as they are but also to consider that the way that people are, are may have been um, influenced or determined by the fact that um, in Western society, like some Asians believe that the best way to gain acceptance um, and complete acceptance or like almost 100% acceptance is to assimilate into the culture. And that is correct in a lot of situations. You know, like if we're a visitor, they say, do as the Romans do. If, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And I agree with that. When I'm visiting another culture, I'm going to respect that culture's, that country's culture and their practices. Um, but when people are like born into a country or they're a citizen of a country or they're paying taxes or whatever, um, or if they claim to be a nation that is accepting of all cultures and all people, then um, that should actually happen. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if I don't bring a sandwich to school, but I bring Korean sushi, then it should, you know, like kids should be taught at home and in schools to like accept that and be like, oh, that's cool. What is that? Can you teach me about it? Rather than, ew, what did you bring? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, like not expect, um, I, I guess some people would say it's like um, white privilege and white supremacy, like not expect or demand that kind of, you know, like assimilation into um, a white person's culture and world. I, I don't know. Um, I'm still questioning all of those things myself. Mm -hmm. But I think that, I think that there definitely needs to be um, more compassion and consideration and acceptance of of each other as we are and um if some people are awkward or like i i definitely feel like there are many times where i'm awkward and it's because i have i'm considering in all aspects whenever i encounter any person no matter the color of their skin or their country or their nationality or whatever I consider everything that I know um, in how to approach that person. Do I go from an Eastern perspective, Western perspective? And that's going through my brain at a million miles per hour. And I think if we had more grace for each other um, as human beings, then this, I don't know, I feel like then our society might be um, a much more kinder and more, um, you know, lovable place. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're touching on a lot of things that I'm going to talk about later when I talk about Brene Brown, who's my story of subversion for the day. 
Um, And just a lot of what she says about empathy and seeing people as individuals rather than as part of the group, a group. Um, Because I think we are, at least I was, taught a lot of these things like in theory and then I have not always seen them play out in practice um, in front of my face. Like, I mean, that lunch example is such like, a good example of, you know, you should be able to bring something that you're comfortable with into school lunch um, without being, like, scrutinized in that situation. I think that's a really good point that, you know, as children, people should be brought up to see or to accept differences and to be curious about other people and the way that they do things. Yeah rather than judgmental and hateful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely think so. Mm -hmm. But again, I mean, that's, in theory, it should work, but in practice, it doesn't always come through. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult for human beings, because whether we like it or not, there are going to be biases. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're all, we're all fallible, so. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit. Do you want to talk about your teaching or your singing or something else? <laughs> let's talk about something fun. So let's talk okay. about, not that teaching isn't fun, but um, I don't know. Let's talk about music. Everybody okay. likes music. Yes. <laughs> let's talk about the band. So yeah. do you have any other projects going aside from Tokyo and the boy? Um, No. You know, with, with having to with in the last several years with the degree and like work and stuff like I haven't really been able to do much but um music you know I just here and there I just pick up the guitar and like you know create you know come up with an idea or something or practice and we've been able to do um but yeah (laughs) um other than that I I like to write and I'm trying to become a published author it's a little bit more more difficult than then uh, <clears throat> I thought it would be, but it's okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But What's... I have no other musical side projects. Oh, okay. Um, what are you working on as far as writing? I So my goal as an educator or as a musician or anything as an author as well is to really write. I really, really have a heart for the underdog. And... Um, I also like, you know, because of what I've been through and of, you know, the world, the state that the world is in and everything that people might go through, I want to write things that encourage people and tell people that every single human being is unique and special and um, just encourage people to know that, you know, everyone has a purpose. Everyone has something special that nobody else can do exactly like them because they, as a human being, are unique. You know, just like our fingerprints, just like our retinas, et cetera, et cetera, like our DNA. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I love that message. So are you writing, this has like children's book written all over it. <laughs> um, so I have... I have a I have children's books that I have written that I want to try to get published. But um, I also actually for my I have this was my second master's that I just recently finished in education. My first master's for my final thesis, I actually wrote a novel. Wow. And um, so that one is like more young adult. Mm. And I 
that one didn't really pan out because I think it was, I don't know. I don't think it was the right time, but, um, I really want to write stuff like for young adults as well, because I'm going to be teaching, um, like possibly third to fifth grade students. And I want to write things about students that aren't really out there. Like I recently got to student teach, um, some kids who are from deaf families or kids who are deaf or kids who are hard of hearing and they have their own culture and I loved learning about it and the sign language that I picked up you know I think sign language is beautiful it's almost like a dance and um, I just kind of want kids you know like students in wheelchairs or students um, who are hard of hearing or deaf or students who might have autism or um, other, you know, specific learning needs. I want them to see themselves in characters, and I don't think that there are enough characters out there um, in the literary worlds that represent them that they can relate to. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know if I will do them justice, but you know, in the future. I intend to write books um, with those kinds of main characters in mind. Um, of course, after a lot of communication and study of, of those specific communities and um, those kinds of students, obviously. Um, so I can represent them as best as I can. Um, but yeah. I think that's a really beautiful goal. I like that. Well, we'll see what pans out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the idea is out there, and it's good, so (laughs) run with that. But yeah, I know, you know, it's not that easy to just write a young adult book. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know. I feel like I sat down to do that several times when I was a young adult. Like, in, like, middle school, I was like, yeah, I'm going to write this book. And, you know, I would get to, like, the end of chapter one, and I I was like, that's it. I'm done now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you never know. You, since you're an adult now and you've encountered a lot of teenagers, um, That's <laughs> you know, I you do may have a be... lot of uh, models for what could be in a book. <laughs> yeah, so you definitely could, you know, now. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, like you said, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I think. Oh, well, tell, tell us a little bit more about Tokyo and the Boy as a project. So that started out with me and my friend, Greg. Um, I had just, I asked a bunch of friends to just help me record an album that I wanted to keep for myself. And it was just a compilation of songs I had written. And Greg was one of the friends that helped me. And then he said, um, oh, well, you know, this is good. Um, you should do something about it. And at the time, I was working on my first master's, so I was very busy, and I said, well, I'll think about it. But when I finished, I was pretty burned out, and I didn't want to read any more books. (laughs) I wanted to do something creative. So I asked him, is your offer to help me if I do this still standing? And he said yes. So we just started hanging out and jamming for a while and we had a couple of friends drop in once in a while to jam with us and nothing was coming of it really in the sense that we were just having fun and just kind of trying to figure things out musically and then I 
wrote a song during that time while I was driving to work and I played it for him and a couple of friends and they were like this is good we should record it so we recorded it um, and we were going to film the music video and we brought in Josiah who is your cousin that's right <laughs> to, yeah to shout out in. to Josiah <laughs> Jojo <laughs> um to come and help us out with the music video and some of the music and we were going to play out that um soon as well and so he played out with us and he was when we met he was 19 oh wow he was so young i was in my late 20s and i was like this kid is so young but he is so talented and i was surprised and he was also starting to like dabble in engineering and like recording and all that jazz and so and after that it just kind of happened where the three of us became a band and then about a year later um our drummer eddie joined us and he is an amazing drummer sick as hell and um can play any genre and um you know it just it just went from there and you know, I write all the songs, and I, I, I'm the lead singer, and I've tried to bring in their, like, I, I write all the songs, I'm the lead singer, but when it comes to arrangement, it's everybody's, everybody's hand is in it. It's not, it's not just my baby, you know, mm -hmm. my songs, they're, they all come out from a collaboration. They all make their suggestions, and the songs never turn out the way that I hear it in my head, but I think it usually comes out better. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, they they just have such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to music, far beyond what I know, because I was very sheltered growing up, so I didn't have a lot of exposure to music. And even as an adult, I am really, like, narrow-minded. I only listen to pretty much instrumental jazz. <laughs> so <laughs> for the last five years, it hasn't changed. So, like... You know, um, but they, but they listen to everything outside of country and polka. So, um, <laughs> so you know, they have these great ideas, and it's a collaboration, and I love it. And I wish that they would write songs and like, because I know that they write songs sometimes too. But and I wish that they would bring it to the table, but they just refuse for some reason. And I've tried to get them to sing on the album too, but. They refused on that as well, and I don't know why, but maybe one of these days I can twist their arm hard enough to to get those things to happen. But we just do it. Yeah, it's just we just do it because we love music, we love creating, and um, we don't perform often. But when we do perform, it's because you know it's fun and um, it's a really great outlet for us. Um, we are in the process of, we're almost finished with our latest album. It's been in the works for over a year now because we're all so scattered apart, like everywhere. But, um, you know, once it's done, um, hopefully, I don't know, we can do something with it. And if anybody decides to, like, you know, buy our album or sign us, you know, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be sad about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you hear that, Universe? She's putting it out there right now. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, keep Womankind and my listeners updated on the album, and I'll definitely let everyone know when it comes out. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. 
That'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think we'll move into the stories about, or the questions about being a woman right now, if that's all right. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Um, Is there anything you want to actually tell my listeners where they can find more information about Tokyo and the boy? Um, We have a Facebook page and our music is on YouTube, Spotify, Bandcamp, and iTunes. So um, you can find us all of those places. Yes. (laughs) Yay. That's Tokyo and the boy. Um, Yes. So here we get to the tough questions. Um, What does it mean to you, Esther, to be a woman in 2018? Um, I feel like that question depends on where you live. Um, depending on which culture you come from and which country you live in, I think that definition would change Mm -hmm. quite drastically. Um, I think in the Western world, being a woman is defined as, you know, having equality and I, I'm all for equality. Um, I think humans should be treated the same. The fact that in some countries still, um, not even what we consider quote unquote third world countries, but in some Western countries, even um, in Europe, even if they have the same job, women still get paid a lower wage. And I don't think that that's fair. Um, I think there should be fairness and, and justice for both men and women. Um, you know, I think because of the disparity and, and the history of women being suppressed and oppressed for so long, um, at times I feel that some women, um, and because of that kind of suppression or oppression that women have felt personally in their lives, I see sometimes women, um, you know, coming in like with the force of nature and, um, you know, fighting for women's rights. And um, I know that that is some people's callings and it's not the calling for others. Um, I think, but what it boils down to is just being treated equal in all manner of life, you know, um, yeah. That's, that's what it means to be a woman for me. Um, yeah. I may well, be wrong. <laughs> that was going to be my next question is, is that what it means to you? But you just answered that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think you're wrong. I don't think there's a right answer. I mean, this is, you know, episode 30 of this podcast and everyone has had a different answer so far. So yeah, it just. I suppose it means things to different people, but I do really appreciate the fact that you brought up that, you know, in other countries, you know, I think in the United States, we're quick to say like, oh yeah, it's great. You can do whatever you want. Um, But that's very much not true for many, many women around the world. I mean, I don't know. Do you think the United States is like the minority in the amount of freedom that women have? I'm not necessarily even sure that women in the United States necessarily have even reached that level of freedom because, and I only say this because I live in a a major 
City. I live in New York City, and mm -hmm. there is quite a lot of the quality that I do see in New York City. But even here, I don't see 100% equality. Right. And uh, in the rural areas, um, like I just recently heard that there was still slavery in like the Midwest and in areas that there weren't there wasn't a large population where it was much more difficult for news and for quote unquote development to reach. And um, I heard that there was still slavery until like the mid 1900s oh, wow. um, in the United States, you know? Um, and, you know, in suburban areas and in, in rural areas, I still think that, you know, if a woman decides to become a car mechanic, you know, her male counterparts might jeer at her and make, you know, remarks. Um, I still feel like in some areas of the country, it still might be expected that women, um, you know, it's okay if they work, but they also still have to come home and put dinner on their table and mm -hmm. raise the children. And um, I, you know, in some families, that's still the case. Um, I still feel like you know, women are still somewhat undervalued in some parts of North America. So I really don't know. And it's, and it's, I haven't been to every state. I haven't experienced every single small town and community in this nation. So it's difficult for me to make a blanket statement. But I don't know if I completely believe that America is that free of a country. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, you do raise some interesting points that there are, you know, a lot of different demographics that we have in the United States. And so, you know, someone from one place might say, oh, yeah, it's great. But someone from another place might say, oh, no, like I'm terribly oppressed. And while still other people might not even know that they are oppressed in a certain way. Yeah. You know, I have a friend who's from Minnesota and she's a highly intelligent woman. She, uh, you know, science and math come naturally to her. Things like literature come, you know, with a lot of challenge. Um, and she was originally going to go into the scientific field. But um, when she went to university to study science, I think it was only her and maybe two other girls. Mm -hmm. And um, everybody, including the professors of you know, her class or the department, you know, would gather around and the, the men would just gather around and say things like, oh, women shouldn't be in, in this field. This is a man's world. And they would say things like that. And this isn't that too long ago, you know? I, I mean, only it's, recently there was that, like, treatise or something from or a manifesto that someone at, an employee at Google wrote um, that talked about how he did not does not believe that women should be in the tech field because biologically women are not equipped to be in the tech field. Or he made the suggestion that, you know, maybe biologically women are better equipped to do diff something different. Did he give actual medical no. um, support no. for his reasoning? No. <laughs> it was Considering that that that's that's very strange to me because if you're going to i mean because in the tech world it's all like facts and numbers mm -hmm. and if you're going to use engineering which is math and science um and if you're going to make a claim then you should use facts and like scientific reasoning and facts to support your claim um especially in this day and age when um 
you need to offer proof to make your case um, much more, you know, stronger and more, um, well, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyways, yeah, to make it stronger. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's like, isn't that like journalism 101 or like any, like you learn that when you write your first research paper in middle school, like you need support. Well, I'm Mm -hmm. looking it up now and it, it was a 10 page anti-diversity manifesto. So there's is, that. <laughs> is the identity of this individual, um, you know, exposed? <laughs> um, I have, I don't know that I've seen a name. Or a photo. Oh, wait. No, wait, I, sorry. I saw the name of um, the person at Google who responded to it, but I'm not seeing his name. I do know he was a white man or is a white man. I know (laughs) that's not saying that's not that's not speaking well for for other white men right now then is it (laughs) oh wait his name is here it's James Damore and he's been fired oh wow well anyways (laughs) sorry we're going down a rabbit hole here (laughs) no no it's okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that, that again raises another point of, you know, why in the United States, you know, maybe we don't have the freedoms that maybe we have the illusion that we have is because there are people who truly believe that women should not work, that truly believe that women should be the only people who do any housework and who raise children and who do quote unquote like women's work. Um, like we're not that far off of when in a lot of homes, like that was 100% the norm and that there was no other way that could be accepted. Um, so, you know, those people are still out there. But I wonder why it's, why it seems so, um, I don't know, like it's why it's such a, I don't know how, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I don't know why it feels like such an attack on them. Mm-hmm. You know, the people, the individuals who are making these claims or stating these opinions publicly, you know, is, I mean, <clears throat> is it because you feel that maybe deep down inside women may, uh, some women may do better at your job than you do? Or is it because, you know, like, I don't know, maybe you don't feel adequate enough to raise children as well as you've seen females do. I don't, I, you know, like, I feel like sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it may all just come down to um, insecurities. Mm-hmm. Um, again, and going back to identity, you know, like, if I mean, but if those people, if those individuals were raised in families where those values were um, lauded, then... Um, then, you know, like, in a way, I feel like I can't blame them. But in another way, you know, we as people should all, in, in one way or another, challenge the things that we learn and not just take things like, you know, as like lemmings, mm-hmm. not follow this and that trend. We need to really consider, um, be like, be smart buyers, mm-hmm. you know, and consider everything and all the facts before we actually buy into something. 
So. Well, I think the person like for, and I don't know this person that wrote the manifesto, but like just kind of speculating on, you know, some of the things that he said and what someone in that position might say. I think it's a matter of feeling threatened and feeling like you have to give up, like that person would have to give up some of their power. So maybe like a man in that situation where he really feels like women should be the ones raising the children. Maybe he feels like that's something he just doesn't want to do. But if the world changes in a way where, you know, it's equal parenting, then he'll have to do some things that he doesn't want to do. Um, so it's like giving up some of the power or the other thing with the guy who wrote the manifesto, it might be something like he doesn't want to believe that a woman could do something that he's doing better than him and could potentially end up taking his job. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> what I'm going to say may sound like, um, communism or Marxism and, <laughs> You know, on paper, on paper, I think Marxism does sound cool because it makes us all equal. But I know that in the um, in the execution, it just always yeah, it goes doesn't bad. Doesn't always work. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, why would it be bad for all of us to have some power? You know, like to share the power so that mm -hmm. you know we can learn from each other. You know, it's just like money. If I don't know, like. I don't know. I mean, I, obviously, I don't have all the answers, and I haven't thought this through. But, <laughs> but in saying this, but you know, like, I don't know. It's it isn't always about being the best at something or being better than somebody at something. It's about working together to create something great, you know, and for all of us to have an equal share in the power, so that we all create something great. It's like a, but that might be. But see, this is the difference between um, Western society, which is very individualistic, right. and Eastern society, where, which is very communal. Um, we work together for a common good, you know? And I think traditionally and, and historically, um, the Western world had aspects of that as well. But as time has gone on, it's changed. Um, so I don't know. Um, and I see bits and pieces of movements of people, you know, um, moving more, trying to move things more towards um, somewhat of a, like a community mindset again in the Western mm -hmm. world. So, I, I mean, know. we, <laughs> I mean, Bernie Sanders, who has aspects of socialism in some of the programs he wants to implement, like he is extremely popular, uh, which I think speaks to like. I think our generation is not a generation that was raised, you know, we didn't live through McCarthyism. We didn't live through like Cold War things. And so I think that we have kind of this fresh view of like communism is not something that's going to make our country implode, that maybe it's okay to have a healthcare system that helps vulnerable people that's paid for by people who um, have the means to help pay for it. Um, I think we're a little more open to those ideas than um, some older generations. Well, <laughs> having lived in a sandwiched in between North Korea and China. <laughs> oh, yeah. Why don't you speak um, about that a little bit? <laughs> you know, I, don't, I wouldn't say, you know, the thing is, is on paper, this is something that my friend and I talk about quite a lot. Um, mm -hmm. On paper, you know, it looks okay. It looks like it's fair and all just and good. But in the execution, people are flawed. 
and people mm-hmm. have their own um, passions, their own agendas sometimes, and it just doesn't go the way that you know yeah. people plan it out on paper. Um, so that's the reason why I don't know if communism or Marxism is okay because you know theoretically it's okay but it's almost when theorists theorists sometimes to me feel like ideologists and Mm -hmm. people who believe in euphoria yeah and and they're almost like romantics in that sense in a perfect world this would be great but there is no perfect world so that's why I feel like all of the theories should be taken with a grain of salt or even, you know, should not be taken at all because of that. <laughs> so, yes. Wow, we got into some really heavy topics. I know. I'm sorry, but these are... <laughs> no, these are things that I think about, too, so I appreciate it. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> so here's here's a lighter question um what are your favorite parts of being a woman um you know I don't know but (laughs) I I honestly don't know I think I think the parts that I enjoy as a woman are are kind of conflicting for me personally because it's not it's accepted it's accepted of me as a woman maybe in the western world but not always even in in the eastern world sometimes like for example um i i'm very very grateful that if i start crying in the middle of the street um yeah people are gonna look at me strange but they're not gonna look at me as strange as if a man does, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that that's very sad that in some families and in some Western culture and even Eastern cultures, well, I would say in, in, in a lot of cultures, men are not allowed to express their emotions like other than anger and mm-hmm. frustration. Like it's kind of looked upon negatively if they cry. Um, and in some cultures, it's looked upon negatively if you show too much joy. Um, and so, you know, the fact that I have the ability to express myself to a certain degree and not be judged too harshly by some people, I think I feel very grateful for. Um, I feel very grateful that I can, I don't know, that I can easily just and that's and it maybe just me. It may not be all women because I know some women um, don't really have an inclination towards children. But um, for me, I find that children are easy to love, even the difficult ones. Um, I the difficult ones are more like a puzzle to me that I need to figure out. And once I figure out what makes them tick, I can kind of like meet them where they're at, and then. Um, We'll be friends. And so, I don't gosh, know. you're going to be such a good teacher. I love it. <laughs> oh, well, I hope so. Um, yeah, but I don't know. You know, I, I think the emotion part is maybe the best thing for me about being a woman. That's but the other one of thing my is, favorites, too. And the other thing is, is that um, 
I was I was actually just watching a period um, <laughs> a period British drama recently, and women back then weren't allowed to go and make a fortune for themselves. They had to inherit one if they could even inherit one, or they had to marry uh, for their livelihood. And the fact that I can, in this day and age, love anybody I want mm -hmm. and um, get a job and be successful if I want to and, you know, um, make a name for myself or have a career and be independent if I wanted to is, I think it's quite a blessing as a female. And, you know, I have a lot more options than I did, like, 100, 150 years ago. So I'm very grateful for that. And, of course, if I wanted to doll up once in a while, you know, that's another great part because you have so many options. Am I going to wear this necklace or that or, like, this kind of makeup or that or a dress or, uh, I don't know, pants? You know, and a long time ago, I don't, you didn't have as many options and... You know, like, unfortunately, um, men, even to this day, you know, like, if, I don't know, some men, if they want to wear makeup, it's looked down upon and, you know, all that jazz, mm -hmm. stuff like that. So, yeah. I like those things, too. Now, on the flip side, what are some things that are the hardest parts? Um, not feeling safe. Sometimes um, when I'm around men or when I'm um, out in the world, because um, for the most part, not all the time, but quite a lot of the times, I feel that women's physical, like physical um, size and strength is not as strong as the male body. And so... You know, like, if a, if a man who happened to be taller and bigger than I wanted to overcome my strength and take advantage of me, then um, if he was stronger than, than me, he could. You know, and that, the fact that that kind of a mindset is, like, that still, like, gives me the shivers sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's, I think, uh, my safety, it really is. Um, my least favorite part of being a woman, mm -hmm. and it's the fact that I have to worry about my safety. Mm -hmm. And it's something that's so ingrained in us that, you know, I've spent time with, like, some men in my life and mentioned that, like, you know, something, like, you know, I, I had to run to my car or I had to carry my key in my hand or things like that, or, like, I walked down that street alone and I felt nervous, like, and they have done the same things without even thinking or like walked in the same place or walked to their car after a class or something and just like never even considered thinking about being scared. And then yeah. hearing me say that and say, oh, wow, I never thought of it that way before. I'm like, that, <laughs> I've thought like that every single day of my life <laughs> or every single day of my like independent life, at least. Yeah. And... I mean, definitely still in some cultures um, and in some countries, women have to be even more cautious because, you know, there's still the danger of being kidnapped and being sold into the sex trade. Um, Absolutely. And in some countries and 
you know, like it's, and in some cultures, you know, you can't, you won't even be taken seriously mm-hmm. um, as a woman, even if you're in, even if you're a prominent figure in a certain profession. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are the most difficult parts of being a woman. But I, for me personally, it would definitely be my safety. Mm-hmm. So we're at an hour and I usually like to stop a little bit after an hour, but of, um, is there anything else you want to talk about in regards to being a woman? I think, I think it's very important as women to um, not let our our pain or our our anger rule us sometimes because um, I don't know. I think I know that that drives some people, and I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. Um, but I know that for me personally, in my personal experience, it's really important for us to try to approach things and come to conclusions, um, you know, when we've kind of come to terms with things or have been healed or, um, I don't know, it's a journey and one's mind can change and develop after a long, you know, period of time. But, um, I don't know. I, I think that sometimes a lot of women, uh, well, not a lot of women, I don't know a lot of women, but some women that I've seen make declarations, like public declarations, um, and it's kind of driven by a place of hurt. Uh, maybe it's a place of brokenness because of a trauma that they've experienced. And it's not like I don't understand um trauma because I've had a lot of traumatic experiences in my life as well but I think it's really important for anybody women or men to receive help and to speak to people that um, they can trust or a counselor or a therapist or somebody to kind of get professional help so that we can all which I've definitely done um, you know so that we can all become like whole people um the best that we can i don't know if anybody can be 100 percent whole but um you know so that when we make decisions that might um affect other people that might have public consequences or societal consequences that it be from a place of kind of a lot of thought and you know, whatnot, and not, not, but I'm not saying this kind of um, denying or invalidating um, people's emotions and people's experiences. That's not what I'm saying. It's just, it's kind of like when, um, like if my sibling, you know, hurt me and I, in anger, said, I hate you and never want to see you again in that moment or even for the next several months. But that's not true. It's just because the sting or the the hurt of what was done or said felt really deep and it was very raw and real. But I know that deep down in my heart, that's not true because I love my siblings so much. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. I don't know if that can actually be done. But, you know, it's definitely something to consider. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. So I think, like, kind of the the thesis of that would be to just be careful with your words. 
I, I mean, yes, and that goes for anybody, really, not just women. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So this is actually a perfect segue into my story of subversion because my story of subversion, Brene Brown, talks about all of what you just said. <laughs> so Awesome. Um, <laughs> Brene Brown, she's an author and a speaker and a storyteller. Um, and that was my favorite thing that was listed on, like it was listed when you Google search for her, like lists all her credentials and storyteller is one of them. Um, and so I actually came across Brene Brown firstly through one of her TED Talks. She has several TED Talks out there, um, but her TED Talk that's on vulnerability has like, it's like one of the top five TED Talks out there or something like that. I keep saying, I kept seeing that statistic and I don't know if that's true, but it's a very popular TED Talk. Um, and so she just has a really amazing and practical way of explaining things and is very practical and gives useful information that you can actually use in building relationships and forming connections and in developing empathy. Um, and so the TED, in the vulnerability TED talk, she talks about like telling the difference between sympathy and empathy. Um, and it's, I saw like a cartoon version of it where there are these two like animals that where she talks about how when you have, when you're sympathizing with someone, you're just saying, oh, that sucks. Um, but if you're empathizing with someone, you're actually like going down into the hole that that person is in and you're trying to feel with them. Um, and so I really loved that. And so I've been kind of on the lookout for her ever since then. And she's popped up everywhere since then. She was on a Super Soul Sunday episode with Oprah. Um, she has several books that are out there. Um, and I'm actually currently reading her book. It's called Braving the Wilderness, The Quest for True Belonging and the Courage to Stand Alone. And um, I think this is actually from this year, from 2017. And so I've seen quotes popping up all over from that. And it's it's a pretty... I'm only halfway through. I'll talk about it more when I finish. Um, but it's a pretty interesting read. So um, just a little background about her. She was born in Texas Um, She moved around a little bit as a kid. She lived in New Orleans for a while and in some other um, different U.S. cities. Um, As everyone does, she's had some rocky moments in her young life. And I won't say too much about it because she's open about this in her text. So read some of her books to find some of her stories. Um, She ended up with a Ph.D. in social work. And she's currently a research professor at the University of Houston. Um, She ended up self-publishing her first book. It was called I Thought It Was Just Me, But It Isn't, Telling the Truth About Perfectionism, Inadequacy, and Power. And she just has a very unique, like, specific little niche that she's in. Um, So she researches and writes books on courage, vulnerability, shame, and empathy. And, I mean, they can apply to anyone, but I feel like it specifically appeals to women, the way that she looks at these things and the way that she shares her stories. Some of her other books are The Gifts of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong. Um, And then she has a new book that will be coming out in October of this year. Um, And it's called, what is it called? Oh, Dare to Lead, Bold Work, Tough Conversations, Whole Hearts. Um, And so through the book that I'm reading now, Braving the Wilderness, she talks a lot about, you know, the divisions that we see in the United States currently and the difficulty that 
some people have and having conversations with people that have different views than them. And she really offers like practical information of how to build bridges and how to be vulnerable with people that you feel that maybe you can't be because of their views. Um, and so I think it's just really important to like dig into these topics because as you know, both Esther and I have said through this episode, um, talking to people, having empathy and trying to understand things from another person's point of view, I think is really the key to bridging the gap between some of the differences that we have. And so I really think it's important for us to think about these things. And she also talks about, like I said, these topics through stories, which I think is the best way to learn about a topic. Um, It's not like, I feel like sometimes when professors or, you know, people who have doctorates are writing books about certain topics, um, it can kind of come off as like a textbook um, or something that's like very difficult and hard to kind of drag yourself through. Um, But her books are not like that at all. They're very light and they have humor to them. And it really is just her infusing her personal stories and being vulnerable with her audience, which I think is really important. Um, So, yeah, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about Brene Brown and kind of give her a little little credit where credit is due here. And like I said, when I finish the book, I'll, I'll give some updates on what I learned from it. So that is my awesome. story of subversion. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a story of subversion that you thought of, Esther, or no? <laughs> no, but what, when you were talking about um, what she, you know, kind of um, what she talks about in her books, like um, the difference between sympathy and empathy, it just it took me back to um, the movie Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn because um, Audrey Hepburn's character works in a um, in a, like a small bookshop in Greenwich Village where it's all about like theologies and philosophies and she speaks on um, empathy and I guess at that time um, empathy was a huge you know philosophy it was the popular philosophy and so it just kind of reminded me that sometimes the theories that um, and and views that people come up with they're not new they're they've been around for a while but maybe they fell out of favor or maybe people forgot about them and so another person brings them back into light mm-hmm. um, but other than that um, I don't know um, I, I feel like there are so many women who are subversive um, but I don't know I kind of feel like I kind of feel like mothers mm-hmm. are subversive in in a way just because um I don't know like to be to be a good mother who and you know like a mother has not only brings life into the world um against all the odds but they have to raise these beings into people in cultures like Japan um, raising children, like making them good citizens, it, uh, the responsibility is left into the hands of the teachers, not the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's becoming more and more like that in America as well, um, where the responsibility of developing the students' socio-emotional um, and psycho-socio-emotional um, 
you know, health is is kind of put on the teachers at school a lot. But for the mothers who, I don't know, who, like, I don't know, they there are some mothers who, like, crunch all the numbers, you know, live on meager, you know, bits of money and manage to feed the entire family, keep the family running. And, you know, and it's, they always do this against all the odds. And for me, in a way, that is the symbol of a strong and subversive woman. Because, I don't know, um, I just don't know if societies or cultures value the women who are in the shadows Mm -hmm. as much as the women who are in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. And I know that the women who are in the spotlight are doing so for those in the shadows so that there will be more attention on the Mm -hmm. women in the shadows. But like I said before, I'm all about the underdogs Mm -hmm. and I feel like sometimes mothers are underdogs. (laughs) I think that's a really beautiful perspective I never thought of it like that before and I think that's also perfect because last week was Mother's Day so yeah (laughs) all right so I think we're gonna wrap up this episode because it's been an hour and 20 minutes almost oh wow (laughs) it's really easy to just keep going um but Esther is there anything else that you want my listeners to know um yes you know being a woman is difficult, but being a a woman of color or a woman of another ethnicity, you know, on top of being a woman is even more difficult. So I pray and hope that people would consider that um, when they are encountering people or interviewing people or whatever. You know, if you're going to give an opportunity, I hope you consider all of that and give a true equal opportunity. Um, and truly, if you want to make an effort to make um, the world an equal place for everyone, then to really consider that aspect as well. Mm-hmm. Well yeah. put. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you're looking to get in touch with Womankind, um, you can go to our website at www.womankindpodcast.com. Um, you can find us on social media at Facebook and or on Facebook and on Instagram at Womankind Podcast, um, or you can email us at womankindpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Bye, friends. <laughs>